If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When they were asked about it later, the killers weren't entirely sure who had been their first victim. One of the duo was certain it had been a gentleman named Joseph. He couldn't be bothered to remember Joe's last name. The other was just as sure that victim number one had been Abigail Simpson, a guest at a lodging house who sold salt and camstone on the street. Whichever it was, the victim's stories had been similar. Each had been a guest at William Hare's lodging house, and each had been vulnerable in their own way. Abigail was a street vendor, prone to drink in excess. Joseph was clearly ill when checking in and, according to his killers, seemed close to death already. No matter the order, their demise was much the same, too. The victim was plied with alcohol, sat upon, and smothered. Then Hare and his partner, William Burke, hauled the corpse to a friendly doctor who paid good dough for dead bodies without asking for their origin stories. The doctor was content to assume that Burke and Hare were just run-of-the-mill early 19th century quote-unquote resurrectionists, a.k.a. grave robbers, willing to do the dirty work required to help anatomists learn the ins and outs of the human body. But eventually, the whole world would learn that the duo hadn't done nearly as much grave robbing as they had done corpse creating, making them among the world's most infamous serial killers in the 1820s. Have you ever watched a historical movie featuring some pompous doctor in a powdered wig diagnosing the patient with a cold and recommending bleeding? It's, of course, wild to us now, but it happened a lot, over millennia. It even played a role in George Washington's death. I mean, sure, Washington was super sick in 1799 when doctors came to his aid, but their decision to drain 40% of his blood volume was not helpful. Anyway, by the early 1800s, doctors were starting to move away from this literal medieval medicine, but to make any real progress, slow though it promised to be, they desperately needed to figure out how the human body actually worked. For that, they needed actual bodies to dissect, but it was tricky to get them. From Simple History... It was not helped by the fact that Scottish law at that time said that the only corpses allowed for dissections were restricted to those who had died in prison, suicide victims, or orphans. 
people back then generally didn't think it was a noble gesture to donate one's corpse to science. So if an anatomist, fancy word for doctor who performed autopsies, in Great Britain wanted to work inside of the law, he typically relied on the Murder Act of 1752. In short, the act established that the punishment for anyone convicted of murder was to be killed by hanging. If the execution took place in London, the corpse of the condemned was sent to medical schools there, while those executed in Edinburgh were similarly sent to schools in the Scottish capital. The intention of the Murder Act, which stayed in effect until 1832, was to deter future murders by making the punishment beyond the pale. Now, it didn't end up acting as a murder deterrent, but it should have at least provided a lot of corpses for doctors to study. That didn't work out either. In the decades following the act's passage, the number of capital offenses, including murder, went up exponentially. But a lot more people managed to get away with murder, so the numbers of executions decreased, which meant that the pool of bodies also decreased. So as the 19th century slogged on, doctors and doctors in training had fewer and fewer legally obtained bodies to perform autopsies and learn their trade. The supply of corpses still proved to be woefully insufficient. Thus, the resurrectionist trade began to flourish. From a video by Biographics. The money was good, especially for a fresh body, and the practice it was relatively safe from a legal point of view. Back then, corpses were not considered property, so those who possessed them were free to sell them without fearing any reprisal from the law. It was the crime of violation of sepulchres that usually led to resurrection men being fined and imprisoned. The resurrection men, or resurrectionists as they were also known, were relatively common in the 18th century. Ruth Richardson, in her book Death, Dissection, and the Destitute, details how fresh corpses had become commodities even as early as the 1720s. The practice was so commonplace that the resurrectionists learned little tricks to make their trade easier. Some found it better to pack their merchandise for travel, both for ease of transport and to avoid discovery. Depending on what the doctors or schools ordered, it would be packed into containers, salted for preservation, and stored in cellars or other dark, cool places until a wagon, cart, or boat could be secured. As with any item in capitalism, the price would vary depending on supply and demand, but we do at least have an idea of the general range. For an adult, as much as two guineas and a crown could be fetched, which, if my math and the inflation calculator I found online is correct, is only worth about $215 in today's money. For a child, the price depended on the height, six shillings for the first foot and nine shillings for each additional inch. Richardson, though, found evidence of wildly shifting prices. Astley Cooper, a renowned British surgeon, testified in front of the Select Committee on Anatomy in 1828 that he had paid between 8 and 14 guineas for a corpse. Other surgeons testified paying up to 20 guineas per corpse. For comparison, a servant working in a surgeon's household might be paid one guinea a week, while 20 guineas would take those working in the factories of the Industrial Revolution more than a year to save. In 1795, a gang of 15 resurrectionists working in Lambeth supplied, quote, eight surgeons of public repute and a man who called himself an articulator, end quote. 
That's someone who created full skeletons for medical offices and classrooms. According to an informant, the articulated skeletons were shipped around the world from the Americas to the West Indies. However, another informant accused the same articulator of making, quote-unquote, wanton use of the extra parts that fell into his hands, substituting human skulls for nail boxes, and making a doll for his child from the skeleton of a child. The report continues, not naming its informant, but stating that the gang regularly used no fewer than 30 graveyards, often with the assistance of the very men who had been hired to guard the graves outright. Men on the graveyard shift, that's the reason for the term, weren't the only ones resurrectionists relied on to make their operation work. They relied on sextons, officers of the church who took care of the graveyard and other local officials to learn who had recently died and, more importantly, which of those corpses would serve as good learning tools for doctors to dissect. Once they had their target, they would dig a hole at the end of the grave site. Reaching the coffin, they would lift the exposed portion, breaking the wood and exposing the body. Lifting the body by the armpits, the resurrectionist stripped its clothing and possessions before tying the body up and putting it into a cloth sack. They could finish this entire process in as little as half an hour. From these gangs of resurrectionists came William Burke and William Hare, perhaps the most famous, quote-unquote, grave robbers in history. Born in 1792 in County Tyrone, Ireland, William Burke served in the British military until he deserted his wife and family in 1818. From there, he moved to Scotland to work as a laborer in the village of Madison and began living with Helen McDougall, whom he called his wife, though he never had divorced his first wife. In 1827, Burke and Helen moved to Tanner's Close in Edinburgh, where he tried his hand at selling secondhand clothes and being a cobbler. Close, in this sense, means an alley or alleyway, sometimes gated as private property. Not wide enough for carriages or even a horse, the narrow conditions force people to spend time elsewhere, at inns, taverns, or in public spaces around the city. William Hare's origins are a little less certain, but it was likely he was born in County Derry sometime before 1804. We know he worked as a coalman's assistant on the railroad before moving to Edinburgh, likely a few years before Burke. He, like Burke, also chose Tanner's Close, moving into a lodging house. When Logue, the man who ran it, died in 1826, Hare moved in on the lady of the house, Margaret. It's unclear whether Hare legally married Margaret, but he called her his wife, and they were definitely a couple when, in 1827, the two moved into that same lodging house together. Burke and Hare had met as agricultural workers and became fast friends. Now that they were under the same roof, their fellow lodgers complained of their heavy drinking and hard partying. While not living a respectable life according to Victorian standards of the day, Burke and Hare also weren't hardcore criminals, at least not at first. But that changed. On November the 29th, 1827, when a lodger named Donald passed away from dropsy, leaving his rent unsettled. This is from The Casual Criminalist. Donald was a Napoleonic War veteran who had no surviving family. He depended on his military pension to pay his rent. Subsequently, he had no possessions and no estate, nothing that could settle his account with William and Margaret. The local parish would see to it that he got a reasonably dignified burial, but nothing more. 
Hare complained to his friend about the loss of the four pounds, which is about 350 pounds today, and Burke suggested selling Donald's body to a local anatomist. Hare arranged for the body to be buried at the parish's expense, including a coffin brought to the house by a local carpenter. The only problem was the carpenter was full service, including nailing Donald into the coffin. So once the carpenter left, Hare opened the coffin, removed Donald's body, and replaced him with heavy oak bark. Burke and Hare nailed the lid down again, and the coffin was carried away for burial. Burke and Hare first tried to sell Donald's corpse to a Dr. Alexander Monroe, a professor of anatomy at Edinburgh University, but Monroe wasn't available. They next tried Dr. Robert Knox, another professor who was known to be in his anatomical establishment at all hours of the day and night. When they knocked, three assistants told them Knox wasn't available and to return after dark. Not knowing what else to do, they carried Donald back to Tanner's Close, returning to an area near the med school called Surgeon Square after nightfall. Knox examined the body, asking no questions about where its sellers had obtained it, and said it was worth seven pounds, ten shillings. Handing them the money, the surgeon said he would be glad to see them again when they had any other body to dispose of. Hare took four pounds, five shillings to cover Donald's back rent, giving Burke the remaining three pounds, five shillings. To them, this was a fortune, and as they walked back to Tanner's Close, they began to form a horrific plan. Yes, they could wait for more tenants to die, but who knows how long that could take. Rather than waiting, they could always hurry people along, if you know what I mean. As I mentioned in the intro, it's not totally clear who Burke and Hare's first victim was. Between the two possibilities, Abigail Simpson and Joseph, we'll go with Abigail Simpson just because we know her full name. That's who Burke would eventually ID as the first anyway. Abigail. She was a pensioner who lived a few miles from Edinburgh and regularly came to the city to sell salt. Abigail came back to the lodging house to spend hours drinking herself almost unconscious. While she lay on her bed, insensible, Burke and Hare sat upon her torso and smothered her by placing their bare hands over her nose and mouth, which she was in no state to struggle against. After she died, they then sold her body to Dr. Knox. As for the second victim, Joseph, Hare described him as having arrived at the lodging house already very sick. Biographics again. Joseph, who may or may not have been a miller, was ill and delirious with a fever. Birkenhair reasons that he was not long for this world, and so all they would be doing is hurrying along the process a little bit. Hare had extra motivation to get rid of him, as the presence of the sickly man did not do wonders for his business. Joseph's illness would have been a serious issue for Hare and Margaret, as any rumors of a fever in the house might have spread throughout Tanner's Close, scaring away potential lodgers. Much like Abigail, Burke and Hare smothered Joseph, but with a feather pillow rather than their bare hands. Burke and Hare likely employed this killing method to avoid making any noise, but it also had the added benefit of leaving the cadaver unmarked and undamaged. This technique later became known as burking. Just to really hit that home, I'll reiterate. 
This method of smothering sitting on the victim's chest to prevent the diaphragm and lungs from expanding while also covering the victim's nose and mouth became known as burking. Now, how's that for a legacy? Nowadays, a pathologist should be able to tell when someone's been smothered, largely thanks to telltale petechial hemorrhages in the victim's eyes or mouth. Back in the 1820s, however, anatomists didn't universally know to look for pinpoint blood spots to indicate foul play. So when Dr. Knox paid Burke and Hare for corpses, there were no obvious clues that the people provided had died anything other than natural deaths. When Dr. Knox paid Williams, Burke, and Hare 10 pounds for Abigail Simpson's body, the men split it much as before, with Hare and his co-lodge runner, Margaret, receiving 7 pounds and Burke getting 3 pounds. It's admittedly hard to translate UK dough from the 1820s to US dollars 200 years later, but this 10 pounds comes to more than $1,000 in today's money. A huge sum for a couple of men living in the tough conditions that were Tanner's close. That 10 pounds would have taken Hare a month of a fully booked lodging house to make. But as Lisa Rosner wrote in her book, The Anatomy Murders, while it was a huge amount of money, it wasn't so much to allow Burke and Hare to take their respective ladies and move out of Tanner's close to begin better lives. So they continued to look for potential victims among those who walked through the lodging house door. Of course, the killers could not rely on a steady supply of people walking into Hare's lodging house and falling ill. Therefore, they started luring people to the lodge, knowing that it was unlikely that anyone would miss them. A candidate, for lack of a better term, couldn't be especially big or strong, or the act of sitting upon them to smother them would be difficult. The person, as gender did not factor, was likely poor, but not destitute. They would at least need some money to be able to run a room in the lodging house. Burke and Hare probably preferred any victim to get drunk on their money, but also liked if a victim was ill. If a lodger was sick, but too poor to seek treatment, few would question the death. Likewise, if a lodger was prone to drinking themselves into oblivion, few would ask questions after they died, too. In the meantime, Burke and Hare would secret the body out of the lodging house to Dr. Knox for another 10 pounds. The murders of Abigail and Joseph occurred around February 1828, and Dr. Knox promised to remain a faithful customer. He was especially pleased with Abigail's condition because she was so, quote-unquote, fresh. After Abigail and Joseph, the next victims are known only as the native of Cheshire and Old Woman. The native of Cheshire was tall, around 40 years old, with black hair and brown whiskers mixed with gray hair. He was a traveling salesman, selling tinder. Hare, in his eventual confession, said he noticed that the man was sick. He and Burke disposed of the Englishman in the same manner as Joseph. They figured why not. He seemed at death's door already. The pair killed the Englishman and received their 10 pounds. When Burke was asked about the old woman, he placed the blame fully at the feet of his partner, Margaret. Just to be clear, both Burke and Hare's partners were known to be accomplices. While Burke was out of the lodging house again, according to Burke, Margaret got the woman drunk and tried to get her into bed to attempt to smother her herself. The woman finally did get into bed and fell asleep, but it seems that Margaret needed Hare to help her complete the murder. 
By the time Burke returned, the so-called old woman was dead. The men removed her clothes, put her in a crate, and carried her to Surgeon Square. Again, they were paid their 10 pounds. By this point, they had made over 4,000 bucks in modern terms in less than three months, all thanks to Dr. Knox. Now, Robert Knox was a successful surgeon, receiving multiple fellowships and serving in the British Army in South Africa before joining the Royal Society in Edinburgh. There, he supplemented his professorship with work as a private tutor. Described as flamboyant, Knox allegedly had more students than all other private tutors put together, which earned him a hefty income, which in turn allowed him to pay for the corpses that kept him such a popular tutor to begin with. There were always medical students in need of a tutor, and there were always resurrectionists knocking on the door with bodies looking for their 10 pounds. Lisa Rosner calls the next victim, Mary Patterson, sometimes called Mary Mitchell, the quote-unquote most notorious cadaver, perhaps because Mary was the first to arouse suspicion. It's no coincidence that she was also the first to not be a lodger. She was a sex worker, and a well-known one at that, said writer Mark John McGuire on his YouTube channel titled, They Got Away With Murder. 18-year-old Mary Patterson, who was apparently very attractive, with a much-admired figure. Mary had gone out with a friend, Janet, one night in April 1828. According to her roommate, she had a tendency to drink too much, and her friend Janet had recently spent 10 days in jail for being drunk and disorderly. In his statement, Burke testified that he fell in love with Mary— which he apparently chose to express by having breakfast with her before he and Hare, quote-unquote, disposed of her. Just a gem of a guy. Anyway, the suspicion mentioned earlier came from Mary's friend Janet, who would become a chief witness at Burke's trial, forming the foundation for the Crown's case. According to Janet's testimony, she and Mary went to a liquor store early in the morning, where they ran into Burke. This was a huge deviation in his M.O. and that he was no longer waiting for a lodger to get blackout drunk or very ill. Janet told the court that Burke gave both of the women a glass of rum and then bought them each a bottle of whiskey before inviting them to breakfast. Janet said she was hesitant, but Mary was excited. So they accompanied Burke to a house he said belonged to his brother. By the end of a breakfast of tea, bread, eggs, fish, and two more bottles of whiskey, Mary was passed out at the table. Burke then made a play for Janet Brown. It may be he was seeking to do a double, but he was interrupted by the return of his wife, Helen McDougall, who flew into a jealous rage, which caused a row and led to Janet Brown's leaving the premises hurriedly. At this point, she had no clue her friend Mary was in any danger. Mary Patterson remained unconscious with drink throughout this altercation, and presently Burke and his confederate hair killed her with little effort. When Janet Brown returned in search of her friend, she was told she had gone off to Glasgow with a man. Within four hours of her death, Mary Patterson was lying naked on Dr. Knox's dissecting table, still warm, Knox decided to preserve her corpse in whiskey for a while, in which state she remained for three months, before proving to be a popular and lucrative dissection subject. 
More than one of Knox's assistants raised concerns about Mary, with some questioning the freshness of the corpse. She had been alive less than four hours before being placed on Knox's table. She didn't appear to have ever been buried. There was no dirt in her hair or nails. But Knox didn't care and was, according to Richardson's book, delighted to treat Mary like a prized possession rather than a piece of contraband, and so he preserved her body in whiskey for three months before dissection. I didn't know pickling and whiskey was a thing, but there you have it. The next pair of victims were a mother and a daughter, but were interestingly not killed at the same time. Elizabeth Haldane, described as a stout old woman, fond of drink, who had but one tooth in her mouth, and that was a very large one in front, lodged at Hare's Inn sometime in late spring 1828. Like the victims before her, Burke and Hare got her drunk, smothered her, and kept her body in the stable overnight before taking her to Knox the next day. Her daughter Peggy lodged with the Hares several months later in the summer of 1828. According to Burke, Peggy had inherited her mother's addiction, making her an easy target. She was offered whiskey. Within three hours, Peggy Haldane had joined her mother at 10 Surgeon Square. Price, £8. Around this time also, Burke, acting on behalf of the firm, killed a woman alone, and the two partners happily obliged the delighted Dr. Knox, who paid them the agreed tariff. Peggy was not the only victim of the summer. Warmer temperatures brought the agricultural season and an influx of seasonal workers to places like Tanner's Close. The lodging house filled with potential victims. Burke and Hare simply had to pick those who wouldn't be missed. In Lisa Rosner's book, this chapter is sadly named Anonymous Subjects, as the victims are only known by Effie the Cinder Gatherer, Old Woman and Grandson, and Woman Murdered by Hare. Effie, or at least Burke thought that was her name, gathered cinders and other bits and bobs, really anything she could sell on the street for a few coins. She was induced by Burke to enter her stable, where he plied her with drink, then killed her. She was then carried to Dr. Knox's at Surgeon Square and sold for ten pounds. In late June, an older woman and her grandson arrived in Tanner's clothes from Glasgow. The boy was estimated to be around age 12 and was possibly mentally delayed, again fitting in with the theory that Burke and Hare justified their crimes by killing those they found less than. The older woman got a dram of whiskey and fell asleep, only to be smothered. In the meantime, Burke and Hare's lady partners occupied the grandson. The boy became anxious for his grandmother, and a hurried discussion took place over his fate between the four. It was not decided in his favor. He was carried by Burke into a back room, and he too was killed. The terror and piteous look in the boy's eyes, Burke later said, haunted him. After this killing, Burke later said he slept with a candle burning at his bedside and took refuge in drink. Burke and Hare waited a few hours to avoid arousing suspicion before taking the two bodies to Knox. Then they received 16 pounds for the pair. Before June ended, Hare took one more victim. Burke and McDougall were out of town visiting McDougall's father, and when they returned, Burke asked Hare if he had been, quote-unquote, doing any business. 
Harris said no, he had just been hanging out, waiting for Burke to return. But Burke didn't believe his friend, so he asked Knox, who confirmed that Hare had brought a body to his door. Confronted with Knox's story, Hare confessed. He met a drunk woman in the street, took her to the house, murdered her, and sold her to Knox for eight pounds. As June ended and July began, Burke and Hare grew even bolder in their exploits. The person presumed to be their next victim, known only as Drunk Old Woman, was being arrested when the murderous duo intervened. One morning, Burke, out looking for business, saw two policemen dragging a drunk woman to Westport Watch House to sleep off her condition. He interceded, saying he knew her lodging place and would take her there. The policeman happily relinquished her to his care, which proved to be worth ten pounds to him and his colleague, Mr. Hare. The next body was someone that could be directly connected to Burke, a major risk for any serial killer. Burke and Helen had moved to a small house between Weaver's and Grinley's closes. John Brogan, a day laborer, and his family occupied a room in the area and employed a Mrs. Hostler as a washerwoman. Burke said in his eventual statement that Hostler came back from her washing to find Burke and Hare waiting for her. They got her drunk, murdered her, and collected their eight pounds from Dr. Knox. It was toward the start of autumn, 1828, that Williams, Burke, and Hare really started to get sloppy and cocky. Anne McDougall traveled to Edinburgh for a visit. Anne was a cousin of Helen McDougall's first husband, and they invited her to come stay with them. Burke doesn't say in his statement whether he had invited her with the plan to kill her when she arrived, but that is exactly what they did. He claimed to have misgivings about killing her, telling Hare he would need to do most of the work. Either way, they killed Anne, and they were paid £10 for the woman Burke had invited into his home. At this point, it was only a matter of time before they were caught. Burke and Hare were taking huge risks. The victim, Mary, had already raised suspicions among Dr. Knox's assistants. The day laborer, John Brogan, was suspicious after Anne's death. Their next victim would seal their fate, although not before they managed to kill one final time before their capture. After killing Anne McDougall, Burke and Hare chose a man who was well-known to many in Edinburgh. James Wilson, a mentally challenged boy known as Daft Jamie throughout Edinburgh, was 18 years old. He had deformed feet and was a familiar sight begging on the Edinburgh streets. He lived with his mother and sister. Mrs. Hare lured him to Tanner's Close and then went in search of Burke, whom she found in Rymer's Tavern nearby. When he got to the lodging house, he found William Hare entertaining daft Jamie. Jamie would not drink much, in spite of the various inducements, but he was coaxed at last into the rear bedroom to lie down for a rest, besides William Hare. On his other side was Burke, the two men, like watchful cats, poised to spring. Mrs. Hare discreetly left, locking the door and pushing the key underneath. When Jamie closed his eyes and seemed to be asleep, Hare threw himself on him and attempted to hold his mouth and nose. But Jamie surprised them. He put up a tremendous struggle, 
Hare and he both fell off the bed, and Burke joined the fray, holding Jamie's hands and feet, until they succeeded at length in subduing and suffocating him. The fight over, they removed all of James's personal belongings and took him to Knox. An assistant received the body, paid the men, and put the body away for Knox to examine the next morning. The next morning, which is when Knox was joined by several assistants. Jamie was distinctive, not only because of his deformed feet, but he was a well-known and somewhat popular figure in Edinburgh. He was known to be a harmless, good-natured boy with ill will towards none. Some of the medical students recognized him, and Dr. Knox sharply rejected this. But when it became known in the city that Jamie was missing, Dr. Knox brought forward his dissection, removing the head and deformed feet first. Now, Burke and Hare's final victim was Margaret Dougherty, an Irish woman that Burke lured back to the Brogan house. Burke sent Helen to get Hare and whiskey. When Hare arrived, they began to drink with Margaret. By this time, the Brogan house had also been turned into a lodging house, and there were two lodgers Burke had to get rid of before they could kill Margaret. Anne and James Gray and their children were convinced to move to Hare's lodging house for the evening, but they returned to gather some things for their kids. They saw Burke, Helen, Hare, his Margaret, and victim Margaret partying together before the Grays got what they needed and left. Dismissing their troublesome lodgers, Burke and Hare killed Margaret Dougherty in their usual fashion. But when the Greys returned the next day, their suspicions returned with them. Burke refused to let Anne get close to a bed where she had left her stockings. Left alone in the house later that day, the Greys found Margaret's body with blood still on her face. So they left to report the crime to the police, only to run into Helen McDougall. Helen tried to bribe the Greys with 10 pounds a week. But you have to wonder how long it really would have been before the Greys would have ended up on Knox's table too. The Greys smartly refused and went on to the police. Likely alerted to the danger by Helen, Burke and Hare took Margaret's body to Knox, trying to get rid of the evidence before the police arrived. But because they always removed the victim's clothing, the police found Margaret's bloody clothes still in Burke's house. In the initial questioning at the house, Burke and Helen gave two different stories, raising the officers' suspicions even further. They were taken into custody, and the next day, the police went to Knox's surgery, where they found Margaret's body. James Gray ID'd the body as the same woman he saw partying with Burke, Hare, and their wives. Burke and his wife were already in custody, and by the end of the day, Hare and his wife joined them. Nearly two centuries ago, some police tactics were still similar to today's. Sir William Ray, the chief prosecutor of Scotland, wanted to get a confession out of one of the four suspects. Ray picked Hare, offering full immunity if he turned King's evidence. It would not be a popular or satisfactory solution, but it seemed to be the only way forward. Hare jumped at the chance and made a full confession, implicating Burke as the sole murderer, which is probably why burking became a verb and not herring. Hare, with his immunity, remained in custody during Burke's trial as a form of protection. Proceedings began the morning of Christmas Eve, 1828, with 300 police present in case of violence and the military nearby on alert. 
Burke pleaded not guilty and sat back to listen to the prosecution's witnesses, which included Hare, Dr. Knox, and the surgeon's assistants. The doctors testified that Burke and Hare had supplied them with at least the 16 corpses of the murder victims we know of. Hare took the stand to testify, as many in Scotland were settling in for Christmas. It was to be a marathon session. The court would sit without an adjournment until the case had been heard and the jury had delivered its verdict. The prosecution rested at 3 a.m., and the jury didn't retire to the jury room until 8.30 a.m. on December 25, 1828. They deliberated for only 50 minutes before returning to the courtroom to deliver a guilty verdict recommending execution. The judge, David Boyle, sentenced Burke to death, saying, quote, Your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized, and I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. End quote. William Hare remained in custody until February 5, 1829, and was given a disguise for his escape from Edinburgh. He was recognized as he was running, though, and when he arrived in Dumfries, Scotland, there was a large crowd waiting for him. Police there used a decoy to distract the crowd while Hare was kept in the town's jail for safety. He eventually made it out of town, and the last reliable sighting of William Hare was as he traveled down a road away from Scotland and toward England. Now, if you're curious what happened to Dr. Knox, his role in the ordeal was investigated, and he was deemed deficient in principle and in heart, and public feeling ran high. Twice the doctor's house was besieged, and his figure burnt in effigy. One such effigy bore the sign, Knox, the associate of Hare. It was a widespread view that Knox's guilt was of being morally deficient and unprincipled in his actions. But this would not do for many, and it still will not do. After all, this guy literally cut the deformed feet off one of the cadavers and kept heaping praise on Burke and Hare for the freshness of their corpse finds without ever once asking any questions about where they had found them. Dr. Knox was ultimately deprived of his authority and positions, his reputation destroyed by necessity, by the needs of the self-preservation of the medical community, he could find no chair at any university. Despite his great learning and experience, his reputation was quite beyond resurrection. He finished his life as a doctor in Hackney in East London in 1862, which was nonetheless a better fate than that of William Burke. William Burke was executed on January 28, 1829, in front of an estimated 25,000 people. People who were lucky enough to have rooms with windows that overlooked the gallows sold tickets to people who wanted a better view. On February 1st, his body was given a public autopsy. The autopsy, performed by Dr. Monroe, took two hours. In a macabre choice, Monroe dipped a quill into Burke's blood and wrote, quote, This is written in the blood of William Burke, who was hanged in Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. End quote. 
Monroe also kept some of Burke's leg hair, supposedly covered in blood. Given the intense notoriety surrounding the case and the demand for revenge from the Scottish people, Burke's corpse did not fare well after autopsy. A death mask was made, a very normal thing for the time, but some of his skin was tanned into leather and used to bind a book. His skeleton was re-articulated and is still on display at the Anatomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School. It's an ironic and some may say fitting final resting place for a man who, with William Hare, killed 16 people solely for profit. Of those 16, at least 11 were women and nearly all had addiction issues. Just like the cases we see today, Burke and Hare's victims could be categorized as the quote-unquote less dead. Those of a lower socioeconomic status, those who were unhoused or living in temporary housing, those who didn't have a lot of people who'd miss them. How else could they have killed so many before anyone became suspicious? It almost seems a fluke they were ever caught. It wasn't until their greed made them sloppy enough to kill people known to the community that their rampage finally ended. To research this story, Jennifer Erdman, assistant professor and chair of the History-slash-Political Science Department at Notre Dame of Maryland University, read a few books, including Ruth Richardson's Death, Dissection, and the Destitute, Tarlow and Lomans, Harnessing the Power of the Criminal Corpse, and Lisa Rosner's The Anatomy Murders. She also referenced Bound Trial Testimony, edited by William Ruffner. I focused on contemporary news coverage and referenced some material I still had handy from a 2011 History of Pathology course I took while in Knight Wallace Fellowship at the University of Michigan. I knew that class would come in handy someday. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 